Welcome to Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to serve God and your neighbor. If you want to learn more about our ministry, head over to mapc.com. If you're looking for a community where you can deepen your faith, we invite you to join us every Sunday at 1030 online or in person. From the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 21, beginning with verse 23, let us listen for the word of God. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? And they argued with one another, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the crowd, for all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard tomorrow. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the Father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe in him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Dear God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and Redeemer. Amen. The epistles of Paul are written to particular groups of people in particular places. Yet, in addressing the particular, there is something here that is universal. Today is World Communion Sunday. Today we take our place in that great chain of worship and prayer that stretches across the globe. As we were laying our heads to rest last night, there were churches in Asia that were gathering for worship. As we awoke with the sunrise this morning, there were churches in Europe that we're gathering for worship, and tonight, or this afternoon as we're watching football, there are churches on the West Coast that are gathering to worship God. It is humbling and it is inspiring that we are a part of a global community who turn our hearts and minds to God in spite of the diverse geographical places in which we worship. The great, ancient, and medieval churches of Europe the house churches of Asia, the storefronts of Pentecostal Christianity in South America, churches that gather in the safety of New York City 
churches that are huddled in fear due to persecution. We are part of a global community that turn our hearts and minds to God. There is a universal call that God issues to each of us exercised in our particular context. Today is World Communion Sunday, and we give thanks for the broadness in which God operates in our particular context in which we can do his will and his work. In the same way, the epistles of Paul speak to particular churches in particular times and places, but they issue instructions that are universal, that span the ages and that span the locations. And I believe Paul's word to the church in Philippi amid all of its disunity is applicable to us here at Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City and all the churches that turn to God throughout the world. First off, I want to say I'm glad that you're here. We survived the rain. I pray that your homes, your condos, your apartments, your places of work have survived. The images from across the city, particularly Brooklyn and some of the other boroughs, were terrible. I received texts and emails that I should be preaching on Noah this morning, (laughs) but my text was already chosen. In some ways, we experienced five out of the 40 days of non-stop rain, and I'm glad we've come out on the other side. Paul is writing to the people of Philippi, and they are torn into divisive factions. He at one time had them united around the idea that Christ was Lord, and they ascribe to his particular teaching and way. However, during the time from his initial teaching of them to the time that this letter was written, the people began to splinter and believe different things. Now, to a troubled people, it would be easy to say, work it out. Maybe you have even used this phrase yourself, work it out. I focus on these words, these three words, work it out, because that's what the epistle to the Philippians tells the people to which he is writing. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Maybe within your family you're trying to decide where to go for dinner or how to spend a Saturday, and everyone's quarreling with their different ideas of what to do, and you in frustration have said to them, just work it out. I'll come back to you when you have worked this out. Maybe at work you're dealing with a team, a cohort, a group of people who are not on the same page and just in frustration you say, work it out amongst yourselves. Well, in one essence, that's what Paul is saying to the Philippians. Work it out. That's what we have in the text. However, I hope that by the end of the sermon you understand working it out to mean something different than being left to your own devices. When he says, work out your salvation, he's not saying this out of frustration, he's not abandoning them to their own devices, wills, or way. His instructions to work it out are much different than ours. And I hope in a few minutes you'll see why. This epistle and these verses from it are Paul's plea to the church. If they are to do nothing else, do this. And he instructs them, Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
I've only been here for five months, but I don't believe this describes our Christian community. Don't be offended because it doesn't describe any Christian community that I've ever been a part of. I've never served churches that are singular in thought, serving as echo chambers between pastor and congregation, where I preach and you agree, or in Bible study, we are of one singular mind. Instead, I've served churches with a diversity of beliefs. Back when I was first ordained, the term was a big tent church, a church that's big enough to hold people of different beliefs, perspectives, and ways of looking at the world. Perhaps the one thing that all the congregations or congregants, or at least the majority of those in the churches that I've served have shared, is a comfort of difference of opinion. We were similar in our comfort with diversity. We didn't want to be in an echo chamber where everyone believed what we believed. And I would say, in addition to that, the other distinguishing element that has drawn the churches that I have served together One that is far more important is our shared desire to learn about the holy mystery of God revealed in Jesus Christ and to be open to God's work among us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to know more about Jesus, the Son of God, God himself who was crucified, dead and buried, and on the third day rose again. Kenda Creasy Dean, known as a youth ministry guru at Princeton Theological Seminary, wrote a book called uh, The God-Bearing Life, and in the opening pages she asserts that it's not so much knowing that God is real that is the challenge for Christians today, but believing that God matters. And so we gather as a group of people who are looking to learn how God matters how the existence of God shapes our lives, and how we're to navigate the world and the challenges and all that there is within it. And so we have some uniformity among our disunity, some common ground among a wide spectrum of beliefs and thoughts. And wherever our center might be, Our center needs to be Jesus Christ. If we focus on being of the same mind, of being of full, one, singular accord, I'm afraid we obfuscate our individually, individuality, and I believe we lose something important. Today's World Communion Sunday, God created a diverse and varied world, and just as Diverse and varied as our world geographically, from mountains to oceans and valleys and deserts, the coastlands to the Great Plains, so too are the people who inhabit it, diverse and varied. And so echo chambers lose something significant, and I lament a growing discomfort for difference and a disdain of those who think differently. For example, we see it all the time. We see the demonizing of a particular political party or position or a point of view. 
I've known individuals who have made their opinions known to me regardless as to whether I've wanted to know them or not, and they've done so in such a way that they make it seem like anyone who disagrees with them is just stupid. They make it seem like there's no other sane, logical, rational way to believe. The problem isn't so much their view, but how they present, present it and what they're saying about anybody who disagrees with them. And I don't care what side of the political aisle you affiliate with, it goes both ways. When conversation isn't possible, and I'm afraid that with a lot of the dialogue and the way views are presented, conversation doesn't seem to be invited. When conversation isn't possible, the only response is either silence or argument. And I'm, all, I'm not all that comfortable with either. I'd like a conversation. The national implications of these statements is clear, but I'm not trying to tackle that big of a stage this morning. And instead, I want to focus on us, the church. Because if we can't do better within the church, this church, how in the world can we expect anything better from the world? If we can't do it in our church, how can we expect anyone else, anywhere else, to do it better? To be true to the text, Paul wants us to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. But I don't think this can or should be our focus. Remember the illustration I gave a few weeks ago about learning how to drive? When I first got my learner's permit, and I had never driven a vehicle before, when I first got my learner's permit, I had six hours with an instructor. And the very first time I got behind the wheel with the instructor in the passenger seat, I pulled out of our driveway, and there were cars on either side of the street, and I was so concerned about not hitting the cars on the side of the street that I stared right at them, and as I stared right at them, I found myself inevitably veering towards them. The instructor yanked the wheel and put me back on course. But I think something similar for what Paul is telling us is applicable here in this illustration. I don't think we are to focus solely on being of the same mind, of one accord, of one mind, because that would either lead to beating down those who believe differently until they succumb to our way of thinking, or just as tragically, it would lead to discrimination and excluding them from our presence. I don't believe we're to focus on being of the same mind. It's a worthwhile goal, but it's not where our main focus should be. Paul continues, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. This is where our focus should be. Instead of focusing on being of the same mind, which involves that which is outside of our control, the way other people think, we should focus on what we can control and how we treat other people, no matter who or how they are. Focus on yourself and what you can control. We may not all be of the same mind, but we can be similar in our care and concern for each other. In our respectful treatment 
of one another. We may disagree, but we can still treat one another with love. Different in our views, the same in our kindness and our respect for one another. And here Paul brings us to our famous Christ hymn, as Chesna taught the children. The Christ hymn, which Paul writes, begins, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but instead he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Christ hymn echoes John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Have you ever heard the statement, leaving it all on the field or leaving it all on the court? We hear this referred to athletes all the time. I remember earlier this year when I preached at a neutral pulpit for the pulpit nominating committee of this church. And I remember thinking to myself, and I remember telling Laurel leading up to that experience, I'm going to leave it all in the pulpit. I'm going to give it everything I have. And I went for it. And I'm glad I did. But then was the interview, <laughs> and then there was the car ride home, and so I left a lot of it out there. And when I got home, when I got to the hotel, I was absolutely exhausted, totally spent, totally drained. It was all I could do to leave my hotel room. Laurel had flown back down to Florida at this point to be with Lila. I just grabbed dinner and I watched, I think it was an AFC wildcard football game, and I just crashed, totally spent. It's a really poor example for what God does in Jesus Christ, who left it all on the court, on the playing field. God left it all on earth in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God spared no energy, no expense, nothing. He went to the cross and back so that we would know the fullness of his love for us. He gave from himself. He gave it all. He gave everything. God left it all on earth. God left it all on that hill on Calvary. God spared nothing. As Paul says, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself. Part of Paul's instruction to us in these verses from Philippians is that we should be humble. And being humble is turning to Christ, knowing that it's not we who save ourselves, but Jesus Christ who saves us. And Paul continues that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every knee should bend. Bending our knees to God, that's humility. Humility is not self-deprecation. Humility is not a lack of self-worth. 
Humility is knowing our place in relation to God the Creator. A lack of humility plagues humanity. We refuse to recognize our dependence upon God. We refuse to realize our reliance upon a kind and gracious God we think we can save ourselves. C.S. Lewis wisely stated, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less often. Humility is self-forgetfulness. It's serving and devoting ourselves to the point when and where we forget our troubles, chores, and tasks. We lose ourselves and we find God, and in finding God, we find ourselves. Matthew 16, 24, 25, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. It's like that analogy of the monkey who had their hands in the jar grasping onto some object desperately, and they could not get their hand and that object out of the jar whole. And so they're forced to let go, and out comes their hand. Sometimes we're so busy holding on to what we want from life, we're unable to have life. And humility is letting go, knowing that it's God who is in control, not us. When our knees are bent and our tongue confesses that the Lord is God, there we take our place among his people. Finally, in these verses from Philippians, returning to where we began, Paul tells the church in Philippi, work out your salvation. Something I would like to do a bit more often is go to the gym and exercise, but it's been busy, and I'm going to do better. But when I used to go to the gym, I would tell Laurel, I'm going to work out. That's not what Paul is telling. This is what Paul is telling the people here. I'm, Laurel, I'm going to the gym. I'm going to work out. I'm going to exercise that which I already have. When Paul tells the church in Philippi, to work out their salvation. He's not leaving them to their own devices, saying, you work it out, you make it work, figure it out. Instead, he's saying, exercise what is already yours. Work out your salvation. I urge each of you to do the same. Taking our humble place as a part of God's creation knowing that salvation is ours because of Jesus Christ. Work it out. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.